0: From Hong Kong, this is Mea Kupa, the Lessons Learned from Startups podcast. Based upon the post conference, where founders, investors, lawyers, and mentors share their stories about working on, with, or for startups. I'm Jeffrey Brewer, and today we talk to Daniel Chung, CEO of Remote Tech Technology, a company focused on smart controls, home automation, and IoT. He is also an adjunct lecturer in technology at HKU Space inventor and angel investor welcome daniel
1: thank you jeffrey nice to uh yeah, speak to you again
0: daniel can you explain us how did you end up in startups or entrepreneurship
1: right this is a very good question um i have uh, my first startup was begins when i was age 26 and uh, i was uh, a little bit frustrated with some of the activities that i was trying to promote within a, a bigger enterprise uh, that was with uh a bigger telco company in in hong kong and then um i found out that um it's you know i was young then and then uh, maybe there's it's worthwhile for me to actually uh go outside and try it out myself and then um uh, and at age 26 uh with just credit cards and then i start renting a small office uh in shang actually uh then of course back then you don't actually have web hosting or anything or co workspace so to speak you you need a space and need computing resources to handle that
0: and because at that point before that you had a job like you were in an employee status did you prepare yourself in a way that you said okay i'll go and do this but i'm going to give myself x amount of months or i've saved up for x amount of runway or how did that work
1: yeah Um, so i did have some savings but not a deal of savings so that's why the, I had the credit card story so I gave myself a year to see if I can actually launch a service uh, I recall that was 1993 so I launched a service in Hong Kong so it's more a kind of telco's type service but um, with that was based on fax by the way actually it was way before uh, puppet internet or ISP per se and then um, so I gave myself a some time to try it out. Uh, As an engineer by training uh, I was also able to pick up a lot of skills like you know uh, you know you have to basically do all the cold calling, uh, find out, you know, try to gain traction, gain some accounts and account servicing, how to invoice these people. Um, so that was actually a very good experience. And that was when I had the chance to understand the word entrepreneurship back in 1993. I've never heard of, I've never actually had that word in my dictionary uh, when I was going to unis and all that. It was not, you know, it's not popular to have you know, entrepreneurs, right? So...
0: Okay, and uh, because normally when you talk about entrepreneurship, you, t- uh, you normally talk about risk-taking. Um, that uh, kind of risk-taking, was that natural for you or was it something Yeah, you had to deal with or struggle with?
1: Uh, I have to deal with. Um, I am very, like my my fathers, are, my, both my parents are actually um, teachers, so they're conservative uh, they're naturally not the risk-taking type. So uh, to be quite honest, I'm one of those spoiled brat in a way that like back in the young days when I was like 14, 15, I would be riding bicycles. all the, you know, in Hong Kong, you very seldom see a 14-year-old riding bicycles nowadays in the streets of, you know, Causeway Bay or Mong Kok or Wan Chai, right? Uh, I was the one that would be riding BMX bikes and, and um, skateboarding around. <laughs> in town so I, I like taking risks uh for sure and this is very you know very very different from how my upbringing is actually
0: okay how were you able to cope with that because there's a lot of uncertainty like you said you you had credit cards how did you cope with that and how did that venture turned out
1: right so back then um the savings and you know i have a uh, it wasn't even a small business loan so i might have a very draft business plan of, you know, what needs to be done and kind of action plan. But uh, at the same time, it was it was a lot of risk taking because we only have a very short runway. You know, we can either get our first account, second account, try to get some income coming in, right? So we, my partner and I ran that venture for uh, nine months and we got some key accounts, uh, not big. It was able to pay the bills, but it was not, scale to the level of where we would hope it to be you know become a kind of a, uh, a universal service that you know all small business would like to take up right so um, the risk factor was the fact that we didn't know how to manage cash flow we don't know the risk of the you know how much run rate we need to work on right and then what what our next milestone and and back then um, there wasn't a lot of I would say, education or public information on how to raise your first kind of angel fund, right? It's all self-funded. I didn't even ask my father to help me fund, for example. So these are like the, the things that I think it's very different from today, uh, you know, where there's a lot of public lectures, you know, like for example, your podcast that share a lot of good stories to people. So there was a lot of uncertainties on how to get there. You know, we know when we want to get there, but how do you actually get there? It's like, okay, well, I know we need sales. So we have a service that's credible we know we can bring it to commercial, start selling it and you start invoicing it, you know, 14 days or 30, 30 days later, you get a chat coming in, right? Can we repeat that? So there was a lot of uncertainty when will we get those chat, when will we get those accounts closed. That was always the some of the risks that we unknowns that we have we have to deal with from a kind of a gaining traction standpoint.
0: Mm-hmm. How did that uh, venture? Yeah, <laughs> great uh, question. Jeremy. Go like what 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 was the end game there? Uh,
1: the end game was uh, uh, I rack up uh, I don't know hundred hundred fifty thousand or hundred thousand uh, Hong Kong dollars uh, on credit card. I have to go. My partner and I have to go back to the workforce. Uh, but it was it was the experience was I mean it might be hindsight you know what I want is like oh you, you just label it you know I learned a lot but indeed I I was professional kind of like by train you know training as an engineer right didn't have a lot of sales skill I did a lot of product marketing though but doesn't mean that I can close deals you know I have to deal with agreements and all that a lot of things I have learned. And and I would treat it as a failure, definitely, but then something that I also until today I treasure because I I was able to um, pick it up um, where I left off, and I take it as a lesson, you know, a lesson learned for my next, you know, venture or my next corporate job per se.
0: From that, you went in corporate again.
1: Uh, correct. Uh, so I went back to a telco company. Um, that was when um, the market. A global market uh, talks about um, liberalization, you know, telcos, you know. Um, and then, of course, there were a string of licenses being issued, mobile franchises being issued back in 95. So that was uh, when there was an opportunity for me to hunt uh, my skills against in, in the telco area. I, I you know, I started off my first job in the telco area. So I went to a, a kind of moon 19, you would say moon 19 slash startup. Game for about nine months to twelve months, and then later on, I was had the opportunity to go back to a corporate job. Uh, the market uh, was good; um, it was good pay, and then uh, we were, I was able to um, uh, basically go back into a, a you know a, a corporate job where I can get interact with new technology, hone my skills in business development, and then uh, and then I start also moonlighting again
0: what was the idea that you started Moonlighting again? Like, well, what was the product? What was the solution?
1: Oh, that, this is so interesting. I, I have to say that. Um, that one was um, during 96 when there was the internet boom, right? 96. Um, I don't know, Jeffrey, do you recall when you last time, when you were first involved in internet, everybody talks about internet domain name, correct? Mm-hmm. Like, it's like go rush off the dot-com era, right? You know, Everybody needs a dot-com. So 96, uh, back when, um, the intern, uh, the, there's only one registrar, it's called ICANN in the U.S. Uh, they were part of National Science Foundation, which they call internic. My, one of my, uh, the manager of my, um, the company, it's a peer, and we both have this idea that because of the gold rush, everybody needs the domain name. Back then it was hundred U.S. dollars. Uh, so what we did was there was an the internic that actually issued domain name as the first, no, as a registrar and then we believe that there's a secondary market for domain names so we built a exchange it's basically a marketplace for domain name for people that want to trade they, they you might call it uh what do you call it domain name trolls or or, or you know whatever the name they have right but if you th- and, and the, we call it InterNIX, so it's like the internic the, the nick and then there's the nix the exchange so back then, internet itself is just booming. Yahoo barely started. Uh, there was obviously a Netscape browser. So we wrote, we wrote basically we use Perl and C to wrote something, Wr- wrote a software where people can interview the the um the National Foundation uh, Internet website, the HTTP, and do basically mass volume checking of domain names, and it was a. Windows software, so it's just like writing out a Netscape browser. That was the start of it. And that was another failure. It was a very good idea. I started at the wrong place. I started in Hong Kong. They don't know, none of the banks understand how to collect money. ACH, you know, credit card, you know, automatic clearing house. So I end up having a good product. People download the software, they hunt domain names, they it. They would list it, but I can't collect money. So that become folded. Also, again another lesson learned. So that was a moonlighting startup. So I was on a corporate job, moonlighting. Um, you know, we also did the same mistake. We rent out another office again. You know, I should have just start off in a bedroom. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. But anyway, mm-hmm. back then there was no web posting. We have to build our own server. So I'll recall, I have to set up all this DNS, NT. There was my, using Microsoft, of course, then there was, I, I kind of, yeah, they have an IIS server or whatever. You know, I have to set up everything. So
0: Yeah, probably uh, NT, where well, a lot of people don't even know that's the uh, initial sense for new technology. But yeah, it's, it's, I can definitely understand. I'm a little bit from that era too. And I have the feeling that only just in the last, Two to three years hong kong found out how to collect money over the internet and get payment over the internet so uh, you did that and what was next for you
1: oh okay so so that that project is called internex domain exchange um the next project i had was um as a spin off to that with the same shareholder. I had an idea, and that was very early on when Hong Kong didn't have incubation. Uh, they had an effort; they tried to put out some money, um, and we, I, we started this company called Net Payments, um, another kind of, you know, in name company. And I wrote a business plan, and I got even got a funding from the earlier kind of incarnation, kind of identity from the Hong Kong Science Park. Uh, they call it technology something like incubation and then they actually loaned out like uh, x amount of money the net payment company was basically you try to use um mobile payment so we want to build a gateway that actually can transact with people using sms so it sounds easy uh, and it's easy to just sell the concept Mm -hmm. but in terms of execution Uh, We just didn't have the 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 right people, so that also folded very quickly. Like like we got the approval funding from that identity that that Hong Kong incubation program, whatever that's called, uh, back in '97, Um, and then it it didn't it didn't fly at all. So I actually stopped for a while. I didn't do any um, any more startup back then. I was still in a corporate job. I was working for a telco in Taiwan, Um, and then until 2001. Uh, until 2001, I was offered a uh, a position to head an incubator in Europe for a mobile, mobile-only mobile incubator. If you can't remember 2001, that was when GPRS was just just right off the bat. GPRS, you know, the the, the the 2.5G data, so to call, right? And everybody wants to create some kind of content or gaming because everybody thinks that, you know, the Japanese have done it with the iMode the entity, Docomo iMode, you know, GPRS.
0: There was in the in the web uh, the WAP uh, time, right?
1: Absolutely correct. So I was working for this uh, telco, uh, well, telco or cellco, a cellular carrier in Taiwan, and they were growing very fast. They have a lot of mind share. So, so back then, um, when the GPRS, the WAP protocol was popular, you need a lot of content you need a lot of developers so i was helping this uh, incubator in europe to develop basically uh gamification um you know um uh, gamification could be for example you have an idol like britney spear you know you, you want to have a, a, a private conversation with him so using a lot of sms wap you know a combination of those so i was more an incubator at that point rather than um uh, having my own startup per se,
0: and from that, because also what I see is you uh, do some angel investment, was that already around that time or is that way later?
1: yeah yes so so i did I did invest in a couple of startup um uh, within our close circle of friends we had um a couple of uh, deals that came through um, so I actually invest not a great deal of money, but it's enough to buy a car in Hong Kong or in Taiwan then. Um, so I invested in a couple of projects that some of my friends had done. They are more in B2B supply chain management, data management uh, in the U.S. Uh, they were quite successful in raising almost one mil, you know, altogether, you know, friends and family type, you know, but not so much. And then uh, at the end, I think none of those actually went through by a time 2001, when the dot com kind of the, you know, the 911 came, you know, the dot-com failure, you know, everybody just, just, just crashes because of the 911 as well.
0: Yeah. So, uh, at that point, uh, you did some major investment, but that was more on the friendship relationship that you had with those founders or with the people who Correct. already invested in there.
1: Yeah. So these are, these are, uh, trusted friends that had some good ideas and, and it was a, it, it was a good, you know, on paper the valuation seems nice. You know, the next round will be an up round. There's some traction. Uh, all these, all, you know, it check the boxes. You know, in a way, right? So, so you think, yeah, you know, 20 k here, twenty k there, and at the end, you know, you end up having nothing.
0: That means that you didn't really had like a, an investment thesis, or it was just at that point as. Most of us probably start out as angel investors, like, "Hey, I like you. Uh, here's some money. Uh, let me know if you become a unicorn," uh, but probably not. So, what what were your biggest learnings from that stage as a angel investor?
1: Uh, at that point, I found out that there is uh, a, the the community deals that that I've seen are not definitely because I you know it's a very small money it's a very close group of people the deals that that I haven't seen enough deals to compare that's a that's one thing that I've learned and that makes a lot of difference because if you have seen enough deals right then you can compare okay well this doesn't make sense at all right but you know when you're just tunnel vision and you only see three deals you thought yeah this guy seems to be capable you know, he he was a you know, very capable manager, you know, he's got all this fire and energy with him. You think you, you put the money down, right? And, and and your friends will probably say he's gonna be in, right? So so I guess my, my I was very tunnel vision, right? And I didn't see enough deals.
0: You still do angel investments or
1: Yeah. Yeah, we do. I do, I do. Um so a, a lot of deals that I do now, it's more mostly something that I can help in terms of distribution. Uh, or brand building. Um, so let me share with you. Um, since 2001 uh, since nine one one, you know the twin towers collapsed. I was actually in Wall Street uh, the month before nine one one. I was actually in Wall Street going back to my original investors for that uh, incubator to ask for for more money. And then after that, when the nine one one collapsed, you know that was when the time when I thought I will actually go you know, find some place to rest for a while, not much traveling. So I actually invested and run myself a toy store in uh, in Canada. Uh, it's This is an independent toy store with a theme. So I started building all these um, uh, capabilities in consumer electronics, uh, retailing. And then finally, I sold this toy store to one of my customers, and then I work professionally for a consumer electronics toy company in in Canada. And that's when I actually get involved in a lot of invention, right? So right now, when I look at, when I come back and look at, you know, what kind of projects I actually specifically look at, is things that I can actually help with the supply chain side, maybe, or something that I, because I have access to distribution, therefore I can help this company. Um, to grow bigger, or it be- can become an IP that perhaps my company um, can adopt, for example.
0: Okay. And then quite interesting, you did a toy shop in Canada. You said you wanted to take it a little bit slower, but why a toy shop? Uh, normally people at that point would start, I don't know, a bar or a restaurant or something else like that, but why a toy shop?
1: Okay. Um, I've always been, even from young, I've always been, you know, playing with all these uh, gadgets and toys. Uh, one of them is RC toys, uh, radio controlled toys. So when I was, um, when we relocated, my family relocated to Canada. I was actually uh, on, you know, I was observing, you know, what what would bring me some income, and then it could be a good idea, uh, perhaps franchisable. Um, then I start building this uh, pop mom and pop toy store that can delight a different group of customers. A different group of customers that you know normally customers look for toys. They go to Toys R Us. I mean, Toys R Us are are, are gone now. But if you think about um, how toys are merchandise of such move through the supply chain, at the end of the day, it's an experience, right? So I want to I want to to cultivate. A, a retail concept where uh, I always have this tagline. I see if you can um, relate. Um, and many of us are, are like to st- tinker with different things, right? There are toys that that has been made from long time ago, starting from Meccano to Tamir and all these toys, and and recently Lego and STEM toys, for example. They are they are all about promoting the the skill sets, you know, critical thinking, tinkering, inventing things, right? So this is when I thought maybe I can delight the customer experience by having them so to the concept of today's hobby mix future engineers. So that was the tagline from day one from my toy store. Today's hobby makes future engineers. So if that's the case, that means I'm cultivating this philosophy a customer can come in when you know he, he may be eight years old he, he buy a small set of stuff but when he exited you know he become my customer When he when he grew up become 12 13 he may be a better person he may be interested in science right so so this this was my concept so to come to I should share with you when I had a good year I was able to close uh, uh, the net not net, sorry, to gross um, around 1.2 billion Canadian dollars on a retail floor space of 1,200 square foot. So that's not bad because obviously you have cycles, right? So mm-hmm. you know, I would consider that was a, a pretty nice experience for me because I it's totally something that I've not done. I I know I have to wear a apron. I'm the restaurant proprietor that I do when people come to my store, I would say, welcome to Poy toys, you know, I really like you to have a good experience. How can I help you? You know, I've been able to do that. The whole point was to see if I can successfully build that brand and cascade it and then, you know, franchise it, you know, over it you know, over time, but you no, know, that didn't work out as a franchise concept, but I did successfully sold it, the, the, um, the toy store back in 2008 that was when i actually came back to hong kong
0: so you had the shop you sold that what was at that point next for you
1: that was when um i i hit a low point too because um, my dad was suffering from a stroke so i came back to hong kong and then that was when i actually have to basically relocate the whole family back to hong kong uh, and then um so i have to restart basically everything and that's when i start picking up um uh, you know, I sold some of the, the the houses, and I have some spare cash and all that. So that's when I start up a uh, uh, company in Cyberport that deal with uh, system integration of some um, specific uh, educational and charity system. So that was actually um, initially I was me and my my partner was just an investor into it, and then but we end up taking some. Well, at least I I end up taking some operating role in it. So um, that company did not scale to a level where, you know, today's, you know, everybody says it's unicorn, but we have uh, made profit. Uh, it's still sustainable. And we have been serving a lot of charity. Uh, even until today, we serve a lot of charity.
0: The, the company is still in uh, yeah, in business.
1: Exactly. It's still in business. Okay.
0: And what was, at that point, your key takeaway from that venture? What did you learn from working for, with charities compared to your normal doing business and commercial enterprise what what was your key takeaway there
1: my key takeaway is back then i did not um maybe it's from my training i did not immerse myself into understanding a lot of the charitable causes that means there's a lot of inequalities there's a lot of issues that that was not something that i was exposed to you know maybe i had too much time in my head but i got to know a lot of charities and got involved in a lot of them and then uh, it could be sickness it could be kids related it could be uh uh gender equality um many many different type of so-called uh charitable or social enterprise that they, they do actually operate and they create impacts so one of the key takeaway was uh in the third sector we call it you know it's like you know what are their impact? You know, um, are they impacting in, in, in Philippines or Cambodia, or is it locally in Hong Kong? Um, how can um, IT or, or, or so-called information technology uh, help to transform them and make them more, um, what I, what I say, it's like more productive or it could be, uh, you know, more engagement. So something that I didn't know that, oh. Wow, you know, I could be doing and helping, you know, other charities to do a lot of fundraising uh, by helping them, right? So that was something that I, you know, until today we serve a lot of these charities on the belief that, you know, we know something that they they don't and we especially highly specialize in it. And I just do it for the passion. No, my team and I, you know, we just do it for the love of it and the passion of it, right? That we can serve. So
0: at that point, uh were you still looking for to do something else, or how did you end up basically in current position that you're in right now?
1: Yeah, so um, I've been in my current position as the um, co 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 owner and CEO is when one of the partner uh, sorry one of the um, the managing director we he has been in the business for quite quite long time Remotech, which is a 30 year old kind of electronics business in hong kong you know set foot in hong kong back in 1990s um so he was at the at the point where he cannot try he may not be able to transform it anymore without extra skills or extra help uh be, simply because um um he came from a kind of a um Chipsets IC business kind of uh, environment. Whereas I came from a telco consumer goods electronics environment, uh, something that he doesn't have. So so one of the offer was to help come in, help transform a company, um, turn it into a, a lot more software oriented in terms of architecture, as well as obviously uh, with my experience with in the toy industry, with a uh, pattern prosecution, uh, et cetera, and, and invention, maybe there, there's some synergy that I can bring it to the next level. So that was a very nice challenge for me. Right. And I thought when I evaluate their existing IP, what can, what can I do? So I, I was very intrigued and plus, because there's a, uh, equity in, involved, that means I can buy into the company. Uh, and that was important too because that means i can i can have a say at the bot level and that was very important to me
0: buying in a company i find it always very interesting because at that point usually you have a one founder you have some at that point uh, as you said what was it like 25 years of business already behind that you as a buyer, because usually at that point we talk about people who sell the company but you're buying into it how did that process work for you? And like, how did, for instance, the negotiation go for like valuation? And c- can you explain a little bit more about that?
1: Great, great question, Jeffrey. Um, it was a struggle. Uh, for the entire board, the reason why is there was the original investors, which is the original founder operator of the company, right? So they, um, the original owner also have a need to. Uh, train the second generation like uh, for example to to have a succession planning so Paul uh, I mean my partner and I uh, we one of the very there were two original investors so one of the one of the investor uh, would like to exit the business uh, because he is no longer involved in day-to-day but yet we my partner and I have the all the energy and the, the vision that we can transform it to become a better company so that was when when uh evaluation comes in you know what is it worth today for say uh 10 uh, you know what what is the value for the company today right so uh obviously as a company that has been running for back then 25 years how does it work you know is it based on pe you know pe or is it based on just a number from thin air and you pull it pull it out so um we were able to negotiate you know at a decent you know comfortable price that that both parties can transact right the old owners and the new owners and that's when my my part of the kind of ownership also blend in so we would doing the one transaction so i would call it like it's almost like a management buyout. it's not leverage it's not a big company anyway so it was a management buyout and we were able to um, become more influence uh well we have more influence in terms of the direction of the company
0: can you tell a little bit like how big the company was and what kind of culture was there inside of the company and did that change when you came in or was it the same or what what was the the first thing when you came in on the Monday that you really started and saying like, okay, now it's Monday morning and now I start and this is the first thing that I'm going to do right now here?
1: Great question. Um, um, the company was um, manufacturing uh, on an OEM or ODM basis a lot of remote controllers. We got, we're we talking about in the, in the heydays when they, you know, all these um Dolby system, you know, all these name brand, Japanese brands or TVs, manufacturer, they need remote control. They would come to this company, you know, there'll be, Mm -hmm. there'll be IC sales guys that waiting outside, waiting just to sell us, you know, ICs per se. Now, so back then it was very easy. It seems easy, but today in, in this competitive world, right? Where internet has been very transparent to many, many um, you know, uh, uh, buyers, right? And, and the brand owners, it's just very difficult unless you have specific um, uh, expertise in, or, or craftsmanship or, or supply chain where you can actually solve all these problems. Um, so the company was able to maintain a few key accounts and then um, uh, my partner was able to uh, switch it to uh, the home automation field, you know, in, in, a, in a small way because we're never a big company. Uh, we don't have external funding, so you know we have to kind of cookie cut you know, project by project. So at the end of the day, um, we were able to um, uh, at least turn over maybe, I don't know, five, six million U.S. back then, You know, four or five years ago. Uh, we even have one big account from U.S. Uh, I can't name it uh, over here, but it's one big cable company that actually have to license our um, uh, IP, for example, it could be very minute, but, you know, if they manufacture many remote controllers, you know, for cable operators, of course, you still rack up, you know, uh, pretty decent licensing income now. So if you think about it, um, the company was was had some key IP in the area of remote control business and have started to build all these um, gains distraction by licensing. Um, the particular I would call it still called software to US companies. So, as a cable company, where when they actually have to sign up customers, you of course you give them new remote controllers, right? And would be each new remote controller every year uh, when you sign up and renew the plan, you get a kind of a big volume, low margin business where, to get you, where we can actually uh, count the licensing and could still be a very good income for for a small company like ours, right? Because it's just software licensing. So the model seems to start to work with this, all this traction coming in. So one of the big change that I have to go in and, and to build is to uh, build on the foundation that we basically have a lot of the remote control codes, the infrared control codes around the world. We have to commercialize it to make it to be cloud ready. By having cloud ready, that means my customer, be it a, a set-top box manufacturers or be it a um, so-called uh, IoT device company, they can actually use it with the host device interviewing our, kind of our, our cloud. So um, back then, back five, six years ago, we were right at the top in, in front of it. Now today, I'm proudly to say that, you know, some of the top tier customers still use the same system Uh, in US. uh, We have Japanese customer top tier social network company, we have US top tier uh, social network company also using us as well. Um, So that has worked well, simply because we were able to transform to a hardware company, to a software infrastructure company, and enabling the, I've always called it the last mile to connect TV and other appliances, you know, the last mile. Uh, I call it the fabric actually IR fabric.
0: What's next for you?
1: Uh, okay. So based on this, this, um, investment, um, we have been able to sustain ourselves. So the question for us is, um, can we actually survive, uh, the trade war, you know, questions that we always get asked, right. Uh, from my board, um, also, uh, what other markets can we look into? So um, therefore our company has started about four years ago to look, to look into what markets can I actually capture? Previously, 75% of my revenue is actually coming from US. So one of my key objective is to diversify my income base for the company. So one of the um, uh, potential uh, opportunities look at the markets and then look across what kind of category of products so from a market standpoint we believe that the asian market the Asia pacific market would be a good potential for me to spread the risk then we looked at okay what category of products can i actually use some of my ip so in the last four years we have acquired um before I came on board, the company doesn't actually surprisingly, w- w- despite the fact that we've been running for so long and there's a lot of you know bigger companies that have lots of patents. This company did not have any patent. Uh, uh By today, we actually have about seven patents. So I've been the last five years. I've been actually progressively uh, been writing out patents with some of my engineers. We prosecute them. We you know when you get approved, we get really happy. So we call ourselves. You can call yourself officially inventors right now, right? But what it does, it allows us to, first of all, to have um, uh, products and IP that we can cross license to different platforms or different devices. So when I back, go back to my the categories for the Asian market, we believe that we can solve some problems. And that was something that uh, I've been preaching for the last five years is how can I solve one the bigger problem in around the world today is the rising temperature. And then um, when we, when you and I first met back five years ago, I was, I was already advocating that I think this is something that my humble company, small company can solve. But it does take time. You know, I have to come up with a grand plan when I slowly um, have the resources and execute well. So the next stage of our growth will come to a stage where we would not just sell solutions. We will go out to the market, build a brand, a brand that actually helps solve, uh, you know, with, with products that consumers are willing to buy. And perhaps we can help um, each household to uh, minimize their use of air conditioning. And I call it sustainable use of air conditioning. So that's why we have come up with the uh, different um, succession of different brands before, and finally we've we've come to decide that we should jump into become a producer or a brand owner for a a fan a fan product. So a circulation fan. So it's called you know it's it's right here. It's called uh, Air X
0: about now, you probably have learned from your previous angel investments, and you're still doing angel investments, as you said. Can you tell a bit as an example of one of your recent angel investments, and why did you do that, and what did you take away from it for, yeah, as of now? Of course, it's it's I, I hope it's not exited yet or like uh, not ended yet, but uh, can you tell a little bit about that
1: one? Yeah, sure. Um, we we th- one of the recent investment is kind of a joint investment between the uh, um, uh, the remote tech board and um, my partner. We did a we had an offer from a Hong Kong Science Park company uh, a deal that comes in and it's related to some core IP of using radar technology. So radar technology meaning um, they're using a millimeter wave. So these are uh, unlicensed. Um, band uh, we call it ISM band. That means you don't need to have an explicit frequency. It's not like five G device where you you have to have a frequency band, right? So the and this the application could be related to smart city, could be related to gesture control, could be related to all sorts of uh, 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 um, sensor application. You know, for for uh, people's presence, right? So. Um, so when the deal came to us, it was um, they were already at a stage where they um, uh, have some traction, some POC projects. So we thought that from remote tech standpoint, and that would be something that we can help to build the, the distribution channel because we have a lot of major account, direct accounts with SIs, with um, some of the name brand, smart home companies out there. Mm-hmm. So we thought that if they can come up and commercialize to a line of products, then we can help build that um, angle, you know, the channels. So that was an investment that we made um, about a year ago, and right now we're still just a startup. It's a Hong Kong science part startup, um, and I at the application layer, where I'm trying to build out also some use case for gesture control, touchless, you know, touchless, you know, control. Um, Uh, Maybe there's some more IP, some more patents we can apply for. We don't know yet, Uh, but um, we are actually pursuing. So that was a a small investment and we need to help them to, you know, have maybe further rounds, up rounds.
0: Yeah, sounds very interesting and sounds very promising also. So I hope that uh, turns out for you and way better than your first angel investments. I
1: hope so. I certainly hope so.
0: Quite often, there's a lot of advice going around and uh, you hear a lot of advice over and over and over again. And what kind of type of advice that you often hear but you actually don't agree with?
1: From an investor standpoint or from an, uh, from an operating, like the startup standpoint?
0: That or even a live advice?
1: I sometimes disagree. I sometimes disagree with um, the fact that you have to go for Funding in Hong Kong, it's, it's true that if you can gain enough traction and you grow so fast uh, that you can show some of your early investors that you know we're growing so fast that we need more funding to capture those markets, right? And then we could, we've got to be in other markets now, you know, we can replicate everything, right? Um, but more than often, that stories are not, uh, um, they're gaining page views and mind shares. And they're gaining valuation, but they're not growing organically. So I often hear from different perspectives, you know, fellow uh, angel investors, that you know you got to go fast, uh, replicate, or you know, or, or pivot, or you know, stop this, try this, you know, A/B testing. If it doesn't work, you know, cut it, jump to another one, right? Do it fast, iterate. I I I personally felt that some of my personal success was very organic. Rather than actually growing by way of getting a lot of mind share and you know valuations and all that, so uh, I felt that in a way, startup doesn't have to be sometimes always be a unicorn. There's a there's a lot of people now saying that you don't have to be unicorn if you can actually deliver results, and then the returns are still above average. There are still investors out there that are interested. I'm more now inclined to invest in. In companies that are more realistic, they have a roadmap. They can achieve certain channels, and maybe the return is 15%. It's not going to be, uh, you know, you uh, know, uh, 30x, 100x, you know. But you know, if they can deliver an average return and and and, and uh, there's traction, I'll be happy to hear them. Right. So, so this is I something that I I I constantly have this dilemma. You know, I I don't always believe in stories that, that said, you know, I can, I can deliver 100 eggs if I had this much money.
0: If there's something that you want people to take away from this talk, what is it?
1: The opportunity for our startup in Asia-Pacific is actually quite plentiful, and then there's a lot of problems that need to be solved. Um, however, I, I've seen through some projects, um, uh, often as a judge or as you know, participate in some open competition, is um, that Maybe be better for the, the solution, the idea to work with some existing companies rather than being a startup itself. If you can work with existing company become their incubation. I mean, there's a movement obviously now with corporates uh, could be uh, companies that are very vertical if they are in insurance they have their own insurance you know fintech incubator right Uh, if they're in uh, uh, shipping logistic you know they have their own incubator you know work with that rather than generic you know accelerator or generic you know uh, incubation program because it's so hard to actually get a your first anchor customer that it becomes you know the runway is so tight that at the end of the day you know the none of the party can Benefit from the, the, you know the good ideas or the, or the, um, uh, or the you know the, the, the product itself. So I think this is something that I would encourage the the stop to think about is like find something focused. You have one anchor customer, or an incubator is willing to finance it and, and work with you. That would be the the, the the best case.
0: So at that point, basically, what you're saying, vertical above uh, horizontal.
1: Oh yes, yes, yes.
0: I want to thank you for your valuable insights and sharing of your lessons learned in startups. For the listeners, although the rating of podcasts is hideous, if you like this Mea culpa series, you can rate this podcast with five stars as a motivation for the makers. Also, if you have anybody that you would like to hear on this podcast, let us know. The contact details are in the show notes. We also want to thank Mizuho for allowing us to use their space to record this. This is Jeffrey Brewer, and normally you would say, go out and build something meaningful. But with this COVID situation, I would just say, go and build something meaningful.